Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. You kind of, you always need to try to make yourself redundant. So um, as, as an entrepreneur uh, in, in whatever you're doing, so like kind of early on, you, you um, for us, it was this journey, right? It was three of us, we're doing pretty much everything. Then we hired uh, someone, uh, for instance, for the kitchen or like to, <laughs> early on to, you know, just clean the floor and cut the vegetables. Hey. My name is Felix, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn why to go through other entrepreneurs to reach investors, which numbers are most important to VCs in the e-commerce space, and what kind of companies are better off fundraising versus bootstrapping. Today, I'm joined by Jonathan Wines from Damakan.com. That's D-A-H-M-A-K. AN.com, which creates healthy gourmet lunch and then delivers straight to your office in and based out of Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and was started in 2014. Welcome, Jonathan. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, tell us a little bit more about these, uh, I guess, the product, the, the, the lunch that you sell and the, the store that you started. Yeah, so we pretty much uh, started um, like uh, Damakan, like uh, in end of 2014, completely bootstrapped. Um, and uh, yeah, at the very beginning, did everything ourselves. So we we um, we quickly put up like a Shopify website, and then um, straight straight away start cooking ourselves, delivering ourselves. Uh, pretty much did everything ourselves. Yeah, saw then a, a very good uh, traction, and then um, kind of grew from there. So we, we then raised a couple of uh, smaller angel rounds, and then uh, most recently also VC round, and uh, yeah, built our business from. Uh, you know, it changed like kind of from three co-founders um, preparing all the food ourselves, delivering all the food ourselves to, to having now uh, like a fully um, fully experienced kitchen team and uh, a whole tech and marketing team to now we are around uh, 40 plus people. Wow, that's amazing. So when you first launched, how many meals were you did you have on the menu? So it started pretty much like in terms of the product was like um, you had to pre-order. Um, two days in advance, uh, we had one one uh, dish per day, so we were only delivering lunch. And uh, yeah, we would uh, basically tell you, okay, order order today for um, for uh, you know t- two days in advance, and then we deliver between like 10 a.m. to 1 1 p.m. And um, we couldn't uh, during that time specify the, the exact timing would deliver. And uh, yeah, now it's uh, now we have three different dishes that change daily, and you can order lunch or dinner. Um, as well as uh, pick like a, a delivery time slot, so it's, it got a bit more convenient for customers. Mm-hmm. And who are you target? Who are you trying to target at the time? Like, what did you see? What demographic did you see in the market that was being underserved that you guys wanted to go after? Um, yeah, so it's um, we, we basically the, the whole vision was to to make it very very simple to eat um, good food every day without the hassle of. Uh, um, yeah, and either like uh, driving around to find uh, a restaurant that delivers or, or that, that serves good good food that you can eat uh, every day without any you know without any guilt. Um, but at the same, still is affordable. So initially, we um, we basically pretty much just arrived in in Malaysia like um, uh, three to four weeks prior of launching. And um, for us, obviously, given that we were like many foreigners, so uh, two out of the three are foreigners. And we wanted to make sure we, we really target a, a, like a broad 
market. So, um, I mean, it would have been easy to really just focus on the expats, um, but we try to avoid that. So, um, therefore, it's like the initial customer acquisition was very much, um, you know, like um, kind of on the street, uh, going into certain like uh, coffee shops or like, uh, you know, waiting in kind of in front of a similar restaurants and trying to, to catch there the first customer, speak to them, um, try to understand as much as possible about their daily kind of uh, problems to to, get, uh, to eat good food and um, win them uh, on as uh, kind of first uh, early adopters. Mm, okay, so you were going to essentially alternatives that the your ideal customer was already going to, right? To these restaurants and everything, and then you were stopping them and just trying to get a better understanding of their like, what they're interested in buying and what they maybe were missing out, missing what they felt was missing in in their their current, I guess, lunch options. So, what were you what were you exactly asking them? How did you under how did you guys uncover that there was a potential uh, market here? Was there other was there competition already? Um, yeah, so what we saw basically in, in Kuala Lumpur, there were a lot of um, uh, different, very small like uh, players, uh, mainly like home home based businesses. So like um, say like a, a mother with uh, like two kids who then start to to cook for their friends, maybe delivering like 10, 20, maybe up to like fifty uh, meals every day to to more or less like uh, friends, family, and um, maybe their colleagues. Um, so we, we knew there was like a market and we saw like a, a lot of um, yeah, small players in this, but um, obviously we didn't really know like, how, first of all, how big is the market, who are the exact customers, what is the real problem we are solving, um, because initially you could also, it could have been maybe just really nice food. Um, so yeah, we, we for instance, one, one um, very um, memorable experience was that we, we went into like a coffee shop and there was like a, one guy basically like sitting in kind of in the sun with this full suit, um, like eating eating a salad, and uh, so he seemed like a, a very uh, interesting person to speak to. So we just went up to him and asked him kind of like, you know, well, in a sense like, what, what's your job? Why why are you here? Kind of uh, where do you work? And found out uh, pretty much every day he walked like uh, 10, 15, 20 minutes uh, through the sun in order just to to get some kind of different food and. Um, and there was also uh, one of our early customers, and uh, uh, yeah, he really loved it. He, he immediately told us, like, okay, I will order every day. And first we thought, like, okay, everybody tells you that, right? Everybody tells you that it's a great idea. So we, we didn't have really the expectation he would do that. But, yeah, he, he did it, and uh, he kind of then um, referred all of his colleagues, ordered for his spouse, ordered for his parents, etc. Um, and uh, there was, I guess, also the, the initial growth, like, really through the customers, like, very organically, a lot of word of mouth and... Um, uh, yeah, that, that also mm. helped us a lot then to, to really learn from customers as much as possible. Yeah, so you mentioned that you started this business off by by bootstrapping. Were you guys all working other jobs at that point? How did you fund the very early beginnings of the company? Uh, yeah, it was pretty much uh, self-funded. So we, we um, all three of us were uh, on board full-time. And um, yeah, I think after roughly four to five months, then we, we started to to uh, yeah, get our first angel on board. Okay, so you guys were already in the business full-time right from the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Because we initially was like, we wanted to test it as fast as possible and therefore um, we decided to to uh, yeah, quit our jobs and uh, try it full-time and then kind of made the, would have made the decision after a couple of months if, uh, say, traction wouldn't have happened as uh, we imagined. 
then I guess we would have to <laughs> either pivot or go back to our jobs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you already were doing these surveys. You could better understand the market. What did you want to do with an actual test? Like, how did you know for sure that there was going to be people willing to pay for this? Like, what was that initial uh, testing that you guys were doing the first few months to determine if it was going to be a viable business or not? Yes, I mean, obviously, because it's food, it's, it's not so easy, yeah, because you could basically, or our biggest fear was in a sense that um, we we serve good food and people just um, order because uh, because it's food, because they like to try something new or because it's it's, it's uh, something cool, kind of, you know, you order your, your lunch on the internet. So that, that was kind of, um, uh, yeah, like a bit harder to test, I think, maybe than, than other products. Um, for us, really, kind of the, the proof of concept came through, um, two things. First of all, um, yeah, the, the organic growth and the word of mouth that I mentioned, um, and then um, and also the frequency. So it's not uh, so was um, that people um, ordered like weekly, maybe maybe even daily. Some guys. So it was not like they tried it out one time, two times, um, and then dropped off. So retention rate was an important part. And then lastly, it was simply because we did everything, and um, uh, none of us really had like a you know like a professional chef background or like any uh, major cooking experience so that people really they they, they, lo- they love the food and the service told us then uh, the sense um, the food was important but it, it's not um, that we had early on these like uh, five-star hotel chefs that we have now so it was also kind of important to, to have a little bit this uh, yeah this more like a, uh, more like amateur uh, um, yeah mm-hmm. food production sense so you found that it wasn't just about the the food itself. It was like, what what about the service? Do you think that that resonated with people? Yeah. So I think what I, what I described earlier, so it was quite in in um, uh, inconvenient. I would say initially to order. So it was like really had to pre-order two days in advance, and then we would deliver in like a very wide uh, time slot. So from ten to one p.m. So all of these things uh, told us kind of okay, it's people people really need this, and it's not just uh, something nice to have. And uh, yeah, that was pretty much um, yeah, a very important part for us. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you mentioned that after a few months, you felt like you needed you brought on your first angel investors. What made you guys decide that you needed to to raise this this capital? Yeah, so the ma- main consideration was simply that um, we so we saw the traction. We kind of had the fast the, the proof of concept, and then obviously um, the three of us were f- busy full time with the with the operations, with the you know going to going to, to the supermarket, going to the wet market to, to buy the ingredients and, uh, you know, chopping vegetables until uh, like all afternoon and then um, cooking until like uh, late night hours, like until like 4 a.m. We were sometimes roasting pumpkins, getting up again at like 7 or 8 a.m., finishing up the cooking and then delivering again. So there was pretty much uh, almost no time to to do anything else. And um, that was um, yeah one of the main considerations to make it uh, bit more scalable and to especially like three hour time and then go to the next level and hire really in experienced chef teams, etc. And so you guys felt like you were just being stretched way too thin and you needed that investment to, was it to hire people? Uh, yeah, or basically to free our time a bit, exactly. 
Gotcha. Okay, so how were you able to identify or find these angel investors? I think that there are other listeners on uh, listening to this podcast that are in that similar situation where they have kind of figured out a market, but they just don't have the resources, whether it means the time or money to to get it to the next level. So how were you able to identify what kind of angel investors to to try to go after? Uh, yeah, I think it's. I mean, it always depends, I guess, in um, in, in in the country or in the, the kind of the, I guess, also the funding environment. Fast was very much um, so. The, the first two angels were like um, so. The first one was like a, a friend of one of my co-founder from like kind of ten years ago. So there was definitely um, a level of trust. Yeah, and um, and uh, the angel had some interest basically also in the, in the category. So like in uh, in F and B and also a bit more in kind of this health health and fitness segment. So that obviously helped quite a bit. Um, otherwise, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, for us, the additional challenge was in a sense we, we completely started in a new country, so we didn't have uh, have any network here. Um, otherwise, I think the best thing is really to to try to find um, angels who yeah who have a, who have interest in, in in the segment, and then um, yeah try to get an introduction from uh, from a very warm warm lead there. So either like an entrepreneur who has uh, who was funded previously from the angel or um, someone who knows the angel very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're not just looking for somebody that had, has money. You're looking for someone that is already that is is reachable in some way through your network, and also already working in the space in some capacity. Whether it means they have a company in the exact same space, or they are uh, just very interested in that particular market. Um, what kind of preparation did you need to do before approaching an angel for for an investment? I mean, I mean, I guess it's, it depends very much on the angel, but in general, I mean. For, for any investor, obviously, you have to make a strong case. You have to know your numbers. You need to um, to to be able to um, yeah, to communicate a, a broader vision that you want to achieve. And um, um, yeah, then I think it's especially important to know kind of what the angel um, is looking for, because uh, on an angel level, it's I guess different than on a VC level, where um, it's very much number driven and kind of uh, very similar in terms of the, the typical questions that you receive. For angel might might be quite different because more um, most of these guys are very much um, they're investing on the one hand because they're interested in the in the space and or in a particular angle. So for us, um, it could have been um, the food production, it could have been kind of the logistics angle because that's that's also what we were doing on the tech side. Um, it could be maybe also, for instance, the country or the region. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, angels are investing basically in the team and uh, in you, and that's. That's kind of uh, the, the the biggest thing in that mm-hmm, makes sense. So, like you mentioned, uh, VCs are uh, venture capitalists are a little bit different. Once you have uh, a right to move on to the next stage beyond the angel investment, talk to us a little bit about this. Like, what what kind of different what other kind of differences have you had noticed when you are when you have you know pitched to an angel and got funding, and now have pitched to VCs and have gotten funding? Um, yeah, I think the the two big differences are. Um, I mean, first of all. Um, it's a it's a very different process, so uh, you need much more time to to be able to raise from a VC because they they obviously um, most of these guys then they're, they're managing other people's money, so they have a much more structured uh, approach there. They need to do like a due diligence, um, they need to get the approval from their LPs from their limited partners, um, so it takes much longer, um, and they need to tick pretty much all the boxes, and then um, it's it's very much stage depending. So if you um, 
if you raise from a VC very early on, it's it's more similar to an angel, but the, the longer kind of or the later stage uh, you receive VC investments, obviously also the process change a bit. Meaning, so initially on, because you either you might have some early on traction, um, that's that's great and it's important, but uh, early on it's really all about the team and about the vision. And uh, the later stage the funding gets, the kind of the less important uh, those factors become, and the more important it is uh, that you really have uh, solid numbers. Um, so for us, uh, we we raised um, what I mentioned two two angel rounds, and then uh, we had a VC round. So it was uh, not as early as um, maybe uh, other seed funding. So the numbers were definitely important, but at the same time, also still it was very much about the vision, very much about the team. Etc. And uh, yeah, VCs obviously they, they some of them have different preferences, but it's always kind of a typical question, kind of like you know what what has been the the, the traction, what has been the growth numbers. Um, depending on the funding environment, also kind of uh, profitability becomes more relevant. That was also quite interesting for us. So the the early early kind of conversation we had uh, like one or two years ago was was all about growth. And um, now uh, we're speaking again to VCs for for the next funding round, and uh, you know unit economics are much more important. Uh, profitability or the potential path to profitability are much much more important and much more frequent questions that um, that pop up pretty much every meeting. Um, yeah, one year ago, two years ago, that was uh, very different. So I think the, the general funding environment has quite a big role also in terms of the what, what VCs are looking for. Mm. So just to give uh, the audience an idea of the amount of time something like this takes, can you share the, the time frame it took for um, from the first meeting to receiving the funds for both the angel investors and then the, the VC round? Sure. So the, um, the angel round was pretty much, was very quick. So it was um, uh, like a, a couple of, of uh, calls basically uh, there was, I think, took like uh, was like uh, two calls um, uh, within like uh, two weeks, and then the angel flew over, and then after the meeting, pretty much, um, yeah. So he looked at our operations on the ground, and then um, basically uh, right after the meeting, he told us, okay, um, I'm willing to invest uh, this amount, and um, we start to kind of discuss valuation, etc. So the whole process was extremely fast. Took maybe like. Um, three to four weeks um, until then we also got the money um, with the VCs took much longer. So the, we basically, we kind of also, we started too late in a sense. So we started approaching investors um, way too late. Um, so, and, uh, but still took like roughly four to six months from like the first, first time we approached investors until they kind of the, the until we really had the, the, the money in the bank. And that, that was even considered very fast. So now we are a bit, um, we're starting much earlier. So we're now looking to raise uh, another funding round. And we're kind of starting now with the expectation to close in the next six to eight months. And we kind of know we have to now go full steam in a sense to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Do you have to go through a lot of gatekeepers to reach the decision maker, especially when you are going after the VC funding? Uh, it depends. Uh, it depends on kind of... Um, what the initial contact is. So if, if it's, um, therefore the, the most important lesson um, and was definitely that uh, like warm introductions are the, the, the most important part. So um, that, um, uh, yeah, you, you basically, you, um, 
uh, you find an entrepreneur who has received funding, for instance, uh, from this VC, and then um, then you um, uh, you kind of uh, build a relationship or you get the introduction from this person to to this. So we kind of you pitch first to the entrepreneur, and then the entrepreneur kind of uh, makes a warm introduction to the VC, and then most of the time, uh, uh, yeah, just would go straight to the partner or to the to the managing director, and then then it's a much faster process than if you're trying to go like a kind of via the cold cold approach angle. You you for instance you find someone on LinkedIn and reach out to them on LinkedIn, then it's it's much harder, and you would probably first speak to like a uh, even if you manage to speak to the kind of to one of the decision makers, they will tell you, okay, here please um, you know speak to to my uh, analyst or to my investment manager, and then you kind of have to work your way up, and that takes much longer and it's much much more difficult. Um, plus, uh, most PCs also they they see really um, that this um, that it's kind of kind of a first test for them in the sense uh, of the ability of the entrepreneur. Can the entrepreneur uh, find his his way straight straight to the decision maker or um, you know through like a warm lead and through someone they trust, maybe someone they've invested in with. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that's kind of a very good sign for them first um, for for the exec- for how well the, the entrepreneur can execute. Mm, so the uh, entrep- the uh, investor looks to see how resourceful that entrepreneur is, and it's interesting that you're saying that you want to go through other entrepreneurs that have received investments from these VCs in order to get that introduction. So are when you are trying to reach out to these previous, uh, I would not previous, but these entrepreneurs, are they typically direct connections or do you have to, did you have to build up uh, to, to get to them too through other, other through your, your network? Um, it's, it's pretty much both. Yeah. I mean, ideally you already know them. Um, maybe because they're in a similar segment, say for instance, for us, uh, maybe they, they also, they're in, the, in, in, in food or food tech or, or in logistics or, um, you know, do something in, with a similar angle, then I think it's it's uh, it's in generally interesting uh, to reach out to them and have a general chat. Um, otherwise, if there's no direct relationship, then um, you know you can try to look for any any other similarities. And um, the important part is basically because obviously what what this entrepreneur does is when when he introduces you to to their investor, for instance, they they kind of have themselves have to be sure that. You know um, what you what you're doing uh, makes a lot of sense and uh, could provide uh, value to their investors. So that that's very important. So the reputation is also on the line by making this introduction. Exactly. So you kind of you therefore you you basically first have to pitch to an entrepreneur in a sense, and then they um, normally they're extremely then extremely helpful to to introduce you to other uh, to the investor or other entrepreneurs who can help with the introduction because obviously everybody knows kind of how how hard it is to get funding and. Um, they have been there. They also, uh, you know, they know if, if they help you now, maybe one day you you you, you can help them in a sense. And uh, yeah, so therefore, normally other entrepreneurs are extremely uh, open to help and uh, yeah, very grateful also then. When you pitch to an entrepreneur that that is on your way to getting access to that that uh, that VC investor, uh, do you pitch them differently than you would pitch to to the VC? Mm, I think it's uh, it's it's rather similar. I mean, it's obviously it's not such a direct pitch, right? It's, it's really more um, so. Therefore, also in kind of with the timing that 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 it takes, it's it's really you want to build up the relationship, right? If you if you now write an 
an entrepreneur in the same way you would write a kind of a cold email to an investor, kind of it has the same effect. In most cases, there they will not um, be uh, helpful or like, right, if you just tell them, hey, we're doing X, Y, Z, can you introduce me to this guy? Then they're like, okay, I don't know you. Why would I do that, right? So it's kind of better to, to as, as early as possible, to kind of start the conversation, maybe ideally speak to about something else, see if you can in any way can provide value to them. Maybe, maybe you see you have a great idea for their business or you, you, you see something that could be useful for them. Maybe um, saying, for instance, uh, they work in a very different space. Maybe um, they, they're trying to do, I don't know, for instance, logistics, and you have uh, someone uh, like a great software developer you, you could introduce to them, then um, that's obviously something much better, right, than if you just write them like, hey, um, can you introduce me to this guy? That, mm. That's not so, so good. But, so otherwise, but otherwise, the pitch is very similar. And again, um, given that it's a re reputation risk for them in a sense, um, it's not just that, that you you seem like a like a trustworthy person, etc., and what kind of what you're doing makes a lot of sense, but... Um, but also that you kind of know that it's relevant for, for the investor. And that's also the same thing if you approach investor. In most cases, it's really about being really focused instead of trying to, to speak to as many investors as possible. So it's, uh, there was, I guess, also a big lesson that we learned. Um, if, some, if you see an investor with like only fintech um, companies in their portfolio, um, then it's rather unlikely that this guy will in, invest in you if you, for instance, you're in the food tech space, right? So it's better to, to go to an investor who has uh, existing um, companies in the space or, or you know that they're interested um, in terms of the sector and the industry that you're in. That's, that's number one. Number two is um, in terms of, of course, the size, right? It doesn't make sense to speak to, if you want to get seed funding, to speak to someone who, uh, who does Series B or Series C, and, and uh, they basically all of the the rounds, the previous rounds they have uh, invested in were all like uh, in single or double digit millions, right? Then um, that normally also means they need to deploy a lot of capital, and um, it, for them it doesn't, it wouldn't make sense, for instance, to invest like a hundred thousand US dollars or something like that. Um, so the stage is super important. And uh, yeah, and then also ge geography and other factors, right? So the so it, it's really about also to to make a good impression also to the entrepreneur who could introduce you that you really know um, kind of everything about this investor you want to get an introduction to. So in terms of like uh, industry focus, in terms of uh, stage focus, in terms of uh, geographic focus, and ideally in terms of kind of what they are interested in, what they are potentially excited about. Um, yeah, if you if you see a VC has written, for instance, about um, fitness or something like that, um, and you can mention that in, into the pitch either to the to the entrepreneur or to the VC, that obviously shows you did your homework and um, you're not you're not just randomly uh, looking for introduction, right? Mm -hmm, makes sense. So you mentioned uh, a few different things earlier about what VCs focus the most on, and they were all, or they were all kind of related to to the numbers. So profitability. You mentioned unit economics. You mentioned the the path to profitability. Let's talk about each one at a time. So when a when a VC is looking at profitability, are they just looking at the raw numbers? Like what what is it that they are? What what should an entrepreneur be focused on when they are building a company that? They're, that they're looking for for an investment. How should they how should they look at their profitability numbers? Uh, yeah, I think I mean obviously it depends a bit on the kind of the, the industry in and, and the, the product, but like uh, especially for e-commerce, um, I think there um, yeah the, the the funding environment has uh, changed quite a bit, so uh, profitability is important. So either I mean um, 
uh, obviously it's it's very difficult for a startup early on to to be profitable. But the important part is kind of you have a clear path to profitability. So you either um, you you kind of um, I mean first of all you, you kind of know for instance the the number of sales you have to do in order to to break even. Um, and and or you can also uh, justify that very much with, on the on the unit economics level. So you know different margins. You know, um, you know for instance your contribution margin. You know how much uh, how much you make from each unit you sell and um, how many you have to sell in order to to uh, break break even on different levels. So for instance, um, when do you break break even before kind of operating marketing and tech tech investments? Um, when do you break even before? Before marketing, for instance, and when when you overall break even uh, or and or are cash flow positive. Mm-hmm. And do you want to, uh, I guess, be in a situation where, with the capital, with the funding that the investor is going to give you, it would not necessarily immediately, but have a direct impact on improving those numbers. Is that what they're looking for? That their that their investment will have a, a, a direct impact on improving the numbers, the profitability, the unit economics, and, and all those numbers that they're looking at? Um, yeah, I think it, it, it depends a bit kind of what, what, what the reason is here you're uh, raising funding from them, right? Um, um, so I, I don't think it has to be like this, but um, I think the, the, the key lesson really, or like the, the key message you want to convey is really, you have a clear path to profitability eventually, and they they kind of um, they know um, that uh, you're not going to uh, to increase your burn rate significantly, and then then you might in a couple of months or uh, you you might uh, have to look for follow-on funding, and uh, maybe uh, that you, you don't didn't really think about uh, how you get that, and you just will yeah you underestimate kind of the funding environment. I think that that's that's more important part. So they're like a bit. Uh, getting a bit risk averse on, on that that level, mm-hmm. and once you do get this funding from an angel or a VC, how do you continue to work with them after they've all the paperwork is done? They give giving you the money. How do you continue to interact with them? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it really depends on the the kind of the, the type of VC. So if it's a VC uh, or like the type of investor in general, um, they're, they're very different um, investors. Right, some of them are extremely hands-on. They uh, they are really really keen to to help operationally and potentially also with the strategy, etc. Um, for instance, uh, yeah, we had uh, some of our investors um, have extremely be helpful in terms of you know making introduction to potential hires. Um, you know, they uh, have to help basically to close kind of a high potential. Um, Hires, um, for instance, they they also called them, spoke with them, kind of convinced them, um, from their perspective that, that uh, what we're doing makes a lot of sense, etc. Yeah, so kind of helped a bit on the, the selling part. Um, of course, also for for follow-on funding, they can make a lot of introduction to other investors. Again, um, they they can help you with kind of uh, sharpening your your pitch and your 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 message. Um, at the same time, yeah, other investors like uh, are extremely hands hands off. Basically, they um, because uh, yeah, if they invest in a year in, in 10, 20, 50 companies, um, obviously it's very very difficult for them to be very hands on. Um, so it very much depends. But in general, I think uh, especially uh, as an entrepreneur, obviously you um, yeah you want to kind of keep them updated. You want to um, maintain further nurture the relationship and. Um, um, yeah, 
make sure kind of uh, you, you keep them happy, obviously, with the with the progress you make, right? And because um, it's a long journey, right? And um, uh, yeah, it's very important to to kind of uh, have a very good relationship with them. Yeah, I had to consider that that there are much more than just sometimes the monetary value that these investors give you. Is it possible to identify early on or even before you meet with these investors what kind of value they'll give you, whether it be the introductions, whether it be the industry expertise, or whether it be just kind of hands off? Here's you know the the funds and and you know. Uh, just you know, very hands-on approach to work with you. Are you able to identify that before work before even approaching a VC? I think the important part is really also that that uh, I mean investors do their due diligence on on you and your business, but uh, it should also be the other way around. So you shouldn't just take money kind of from any anyone, right? It's it's very important that you um, you do kind of due diligence on on your potential investor and that you. Um, I mean, it depends obviously in what kind of situation you're in, um, but that you you choose your investor um, or your, your future investor um, very um, carefully and with a view, first of all, um, uh, yeah, what, what's your expectation? What are you trying to, to get out of them? Is it just really just the money or is it uh, certain operational support? Um, and also, for instance, with a view um, for f- uh, future funding rounds, right? So if that obviously always helps if it's like a big fund. If if you see they they uh, they do follow on investments, which for some in, uh, VCs, for instance, they they are not allowed to to make follow on investments, or they have like a certain limit kind of day uh, of capital they can um, deploy to to a certain company, and um, those are all things uh, you want to check out beforehand. When you say follow on investments, you're talking about subsequent investment rounds that they would contribute to. Yeah, exactly. It also depends on the fund size, right? If, if uh, someone has like a, a lower a digit a million um, fund and they already invested quite a lot into your business, then, then uh, the likelihood is also very low that they, they do, could follow on with uh, uh, yeah, in sub- subsequent uh, rounds. And um, yeah, and again, the, the important part kind of this, this due diligence that, that you do, so ideally you speak to to a couple of their portfolio companies. You could even, right, in your, if you're in an investment process, you could even simply ask them, right, some, you know, who are companies um, that you actively work with? Um, could I speak to one of them? To, could you make an introduction to founders, right, and that they should be also quite willing to do that? Otherwise, um, yeah, you can also basically go the other way around and um, just approach um, a company they have invested in, kind of reach out to the founder and say, hey, we're, you know, we we we're right now in in discussion with these guys. Um, you know, are you free to have a chat? And then you, you try to find out how do they work with their entrepreneurs, um, and and try to get a feeling how the relationship is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is all great insight into the kind of uh, the investment world for for um, for e-commerce businesses. Now, for all the the listeners out there, can you talk a little bit about what kind of company, whether the industry or the stage that they're at, what kind of company makes the most sense to not makes the most sense, but what kind of company sh- is better off looking for investments, and which companies might be better off, uh, I guess, avoiding working with investors? Or, or do, do do you have like a clear identification for which ones are a better fit for investments versus not? Um, I think it's. Uh, I mean, that's a that's a very difficult question. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, 
I think it's um, in in general. You should also before you you raise funding, right? You should really think about: Do you want to raise funding? I think that's a very important consideration because the moment, obviously, you you take on someone's um, someone's money, you you have the, an obligation and uh, and a responsibility, and uh, a lot of things might change. And if you have been previously, you have been completely bootstrapped and. You um, you you want to have the the, the 100% flexibility in, in all of your decision and want to be able to make a lot of pivots. That, that these kind of things get a bit harder, right? At mm-hmm. the same time, obviously you can go much faster with what you what you're currently doing or what you're planning to do. So communications and something uh, very important, very very important with your investors, right? So I think that that's something also. Um, yeah, again, you should kind of consider beforehand. Do you really do you really want to uh, have an investor and do you really um, kind of also need to, right? Um, I think a lot of businesses, for instance, also um, can definitely work without any investor, right? Without any outside funding. And I think there are also like some huge um, examples that, that uh, never raised uh, money and then went straight to IPO, right? If that's the goal. So I think it's really, again, it really depends on kind of your vision and what you want to do for us it was very much uh, we, we wanted to have the on the one hand the operations support and we simply wanted to also uh, go much faster and therefore we decided to, to raise um, funding and uh, yeah I mean if you if you're saying fintech or biotech or something like uh, uh, with a lot of capex etc and I guess it's also uh, it's it's pretty much um, yeah impossible if you, if you can uh, yeah, to, to kind of self fund yeah, right. I, I realize that it's definitely a question that has so many variables uh, involved and it's really a quite almost a personal question about where you want to take the company and of course some industries will require this kind of investment much more than than other other industries um, so that one for you guys when you did raise these funds were they sp- initially specifically for hiring uh, staff like what did you need the the money for um, right off the bat yeah uh, yeah exactly so for us was um, early on was very much to to first of all free our time on from the kind of operational um, like uh, everyday um, tasks yeah, because we um, what I mentioned we, we pretty much did everything yeah and um, uh, obviously as an entrepreneur you always kind of have to think of what's what's kind of the what are my priorities and what are what are the things I should be working on or what kind of what should I do and um, <laughs> in our case like you know cutting cutting carrots or Cleaning the floor was maybe not the, the, the most um, high priority work that, uh, or like the best use of our time in a sense. So, so those were were the kind of things that we uh, quickly then um, um, outsourced or like basically hired staff for. And then um, yeah, the next thing was simply also for us to 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 move from this kind of home based business in a sense to 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 have like a really professional setup and um, you know set up a kitchen, hire really experienced uh, chefs, etc. Um, that obviously costs all money, and then, uh, and then especially in the later rounds, then uh, the whole tech part. So um, the difference for us is basically that um, we're not just kind of producing the food, but we also deliver it, and we we all, we um, in a sense own the the logistics part. Uh, we have the very tight control over, so we have developed our own uh, routing algorithm and uh, quite a lot of. Um, sophisticated tech on the back end, on the on the logistics back end, and uh, yeah, there we needed uh, really great smart developers who could help us build that. Mm-hmm. So once you did free up your your time, what did you guys want to focus on on immediately? Once you were no longer doing all the cooking and you now have that time to focus on the business, what did you guys want to attack first? 
Um, yeah, the, the big part was um, to, to further, like, I mean, talking really early on was um, to really do much more customer uh, research and discovery in a sense. We really spent much more time really speaking to customers, figuring out um, what, what they want and um, what's the problem that you're solving. Um, so, so I guess a bit more on the, on the positioning and on the strategic side. And then um, after a while also, of course, uh, marketing and uh and yeah, what I mentioned is just the tech part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking of the tech, uh, I noticed once I went to the website, you guys have an app as well for an and- for Android devices and iOS devices. When did when did this come along? When did you guys decide to develop apps for, or uh, get these two apps for your your business? Um, so it's pretty much um, roughly one year ago we kind of launched the first version, and then um, now since like uh, like six months ago we we did the major overhaul of the app. And uh, yeah, launched, relaunched it in a sense. And what made you decide to go this route to create these uh, these apps ra- rather than just having people go to um, you know the mobile website or the the, the desktop website? Um, for us, it was um, pretty much because it's um, yeah because of uh, food delivery, so the, the product we we want to make it as convenient as possible, and we try to also look for another order channel and uh, also uh, another way to to remind people, right? So I mean. Um, uh, on the website, you you have um, you can find or you can use email, etc. Right to to remind people. Um, obviously, if uh, at the same time you're also uh, on on the person's phone and you can send push notifications, you can send SMS, etc. And you simply have another uh, order channel for them that they can easily access when they are, for instance, on the go when they're, you know, in the, in a, in taxi or, or on a train. That um, that was uh, fast uh, important to to kind of. Have more touch potential touch points with the customer, mm, like these notifications, or just being a presence on their on their device rather than having them remind be reminded themselves to come visit you. You are always sort of you know in their face, maybe not not uh, uh, intrusively, but definitely much more likely for them to see and be reminded to 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 purchase from you. Um, now, if someone wants to, or for, at least for your experience, how did you guys go about creating an app? I mean, it sounds like a pretty big uh, challenge that is definitely much more technical than just setting up uh, an e-commerce site. What was the process for you guys to to create the the application? Yeah, no, it's much much more complicated, right? So, for instance, um, uh, our in- first website um, was really amazing. Yeah, I, I was able to put it up myself, so I. I'm, I learned a little bit like HTML and a little bit uh, CSS, but uh, pretty much I didn't know anything about website in a sense. And, and I was able to, to uh, together with the help of Shopify, right, to put up a, a really nice designed, or at least from my perspective, nice designed and well-functioning website within, uh, I think it was uh, one or two days and be ready to, to accept the first order. So that was very amazing. Right, um, the whole apps obviously that's that's much much more difficult. So um, I, I pretty much couldn't have done it. So I've, um, we have a CTO who who then worked um, with the uh, development company. Uh, so initially we we engaged a, a development company in India because we simply also um, obviously funding were limited and we wanted to be very fast. Um, so this worked very well until a certain point. I mean, took still took quite a long time. I think took six to nine months until we had like a first um, version where people could order. Um, but however, then after a while also, um, it became more and more complex. And uh, then, yeah, we, we moved 
we moved this more in-house and uh, hired developers in-house, etc., to uh, yeah be able to to bring the app on and onto the next level. Um, yeah, so again, much 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 more complex and um, faster app is pretty much it's like uh, because we, we see a bit different behaviors right on the website. People like people um, they um, because you can pre-order for uh, our service and um, on the website people are pre-ordering more for for several days in advance. It's more for those, for those guys who you know sit down and then. I think a bit about their schedule, whereas like the app is more kind of uh, a bit impulsive, impulsive and kind of last minute. Uh, yeah, so therefore, it's it's a bit different and quite complementary behavior on the different channels. But yeah, again, the app is uh, it's much more complex to to develop an app, um, especially if you want to. So ours are native apps, and um, you want to have a nice experience, right? There, there. I think there are a lot of kind of shortcuts you can try to do, but um, this. Uh, yeah, might make the experience worse and then uh, backfire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think working with an outsourced development company uh, is can be. Uh, it can take much longer than you might anticipate and can cost a lot more than you anticipate if you can kind of get a control of it early on. So going back, I know that you you have a CTO that handles this, uh, but if you maybe speak from your experience, if you could go back, what would you do differently to, to make sure that, uh, I guess, the process uh, can be as smooth as possible when working with an outsourced development company? I think um, I, I wouldn't do much differently. I mean... Um, one, one really good thing we did early on when we, we, we kind of um, we let different com- uh, companies or also freelancers kind of compete uh, right so we we uh, set aside a small budget where we said okay this is just for, for testing out um, different freelancers for instance different developers yeah? so we, we uh, say we allocated maybe maybe five hours or maybe ten hours um, per freelancer just for them to to kind of to let them work on something that we could then easily compare across the different freelancers and then make a decision who, who would be the, the best person to work with um, and that's important I think one important lesson that we learned is it's not just the, the quality they produce in terms of uh, yeah, the, the code or whatever but it's very much the communication is it's actually one mm-hmm. of the most important parts so it, it's it's super important or you can, you can have an amazing developer but if you cannot really communicate with with him or her, um, what you what you're trying to do, then then this will uh, cause you a lot of uh, headache and uh, takes a lot of time, and then then might be better to have someone who is uh, slightly less less competent on the coding part, but completely understands what you're trying to do. That that's much better. So this communication part is extremely important, and therefore um, you should definitely test test any freelancer you work with um, on, on that part. Yeah, how, how how easy do you think it is to to communicate with this person, and how how quickly does that person get what you what you mean in a sense? So that, that might also vary, right? It could be like uh, I can work extremely well with uh, one freelancer, and my my co-founder couldn't work with this person at all. Mm-hmm. So it's it's also a bit on the individual level, right? It has to do a lot with just the fit between the personalities of of you and then the people that you're working with that you're hiring. Uh, so you mentioned that you, the company has now grown to over 40 people uh, since since starting. Uh, tell us a little bit about this experience because not a lot of entrepreneurs have the opportunity to go through this to hire such a large company. What were some of the more difficult parts about scaling a business to over 40 people? The interesting part is really this um, kind of that you, in a sense, 
um, you kind of you always need to try to make yourself redundant. So um, as as an entrepreneur uh, in in whatever you're doing. So like kind of early on, you you um, for us it was this journey, right? It was three of us were doing pretty much everything. Then we hired uh, someone, uh, for instance, for the kitchen or like to <laughs> early on to you know just clean the floor and cut the vegetables. Next part was to to have someone uh, who do who did the delivery. Um, next hire was then uh, someone who who was kind of managing the kitchen. Um, and so, so we gradually kind of try to um, give away more and more parts of our roles, and and in order to be able to to work on the the higher higher value things in the sense of like kind of the the, the higher priority um, uh, task, and that's something um, very difficult because uh, often you, you know you you like to do certain things. So for instance, you like to. Um, uh, maybe, maybe you you like to be very much involved in, say, for instance, the kitchen process, or you you love to think about like uh, packaging or something like that, um, um, or you you love to to make a post on social media or design like a, a banner or something like that. But uh, you really have to to think of okay, well, what does kind of what does the company need or what does the team need um, need me to focus on, and uh, be able to to kind of give this away, and then obviously find people who. Who can uh, do it as good as you, or ideally even much better than, than you, right? And that, that's kind of the hard part mm. so to, to find the right people and to also identify, obviously, what kind of um, people you need and what kind of tasks you, you need to, to to give away. And um, and then really um, build the, the entire company's class. Um, I mean, we are first time entrepreneurs in a sense. I mean, we have worked in, uh, in, in startup setups before. Um, but uh, I think this this was also uh, quite a big big change to to really becoming a company and instead of uh, um, having this kind of home home based business uh, or like having a team of five where where you you know you you, you trust everyone blindly and you know everyone since since uh, five or ten years to um, yeah to having like really proper company setup and um, yeah having to to manage not just the company but also obviously the people right and keep them motivated keep them inspired and engaged yeah i love the philosophy that as an entrepreneur as a as a founder you really want to always make yourself redundant to have people that can take over the roles to take over the responsibilities that you had early on the more you kind of iterate through that the the faster you can scale the the much much more likely you can create a scalable company. Um, so speaking of the growth, can you give us an idea of how successful or how much the business has grown since uh, since starting? Um, yeah, so, so we have been um, growing around uh, twenty to twenty five percent month on month since we since we started. Um, obviously, it's always you ha- you have like times where you grow extremely fast and uh, you know you have certain things you kind of have to figure out to to reach the next growth stage so that there, there was also a very interesting um, experience for us so it's what you see kind of this hockey stick that uh, everybody talks about um, kind of if you zoom out you you will see it in a sense but if you zoom in you will see a lot of you know different like uh, extreme growth spurs and then like a plateau and then another huge huge uh, kind of jump up so uh, that, that's also something uh, especially if you're like quite operationally heavy uh, um, like as we are then um, that, that's something uh very interesting, I think, uh, for me to, to have witnessed that over the last two years. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And for running a relatively complex uh, e-commerce business, and as such a uh, you know with forty employees, what uh, what kind of apps and tools or services do you do you rely on to to run the business? 
Um, yeah, I think it's um, there's uh, we we kind of constantly looking also for for additional tools. I think the, the hard part is obviously to get everybody on board to use it. Yeah. Um, so uh, I mean we. Uh, we we pretty much work a, a lot with the like Google Drive, all the you know all the like uh, the Google like um, Google spreadsheets, etc. It's, it's quite interesting actually. You can also do a lot of things there that I, I previously didn't know about. You can um, you can automate a lot of processes. Um, for instance, what we kind of built ourselves is is an email sending tool pretty much through Google spreadsheets. So you 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 know you dump into a spreadsheet all of uh, the emails, for instance, like customers, when we want to send out a rain notification, we just uh, copy-paste all the email addresses into into Google spreadsheet and then have like the, the text and then use uh, use Google spreadsheets to, to send out uh, a customized email to all of these um, customers. That's something we kind of build ourselves a little bit. Um, and uh, yeah, otherwise, uh, we also use Slack for, for internal communication, a lot of WhatsApp, Nevertheless, um, and uh, yeah, I mean personally for me, like DocuSign made made the biggest difference. Yeah, like that you can simply sign, uh, you know, uh, documents online, and mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to print them, etc. There was a, it's kind of a, a silly in a sense, but for me, like freed a lot of my time. So. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of paperwork in your line of work then. Um, so, what do you guys want to focus on this year? What are the goals for for the business um, in 2017? <sighs> Um, yeah, so 2017 is extremely um, uh, interesting year for us. So um, we right now um, again we're starting the, the kind of the fundraising process um, to raise follow-on investment, and uh, we have seen that in the last year we made a lot of progress, especially on the on the logistics technology part. So we we focus more on on growth in in Kuala Lumpur here in Malaysia, and then we're also looking to to expand uh, into another market, and uh, so that's. Uh, we're very excited for that. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time again, Jonathan. So Damakan.com again is a website. D-A-H-M-A-K-A-N.com is the website. Anywhere else you recommend the listeners go and check out if they want to follow along with what you guys are up to or what you're up to? Um you can uh, yeah, you can check out our Instagram and Facebook uh, if if you're looking for some some nice uh, tasty food pictures. Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, definitely Damakan.com is the right uh, my place to, to check out. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Jonathan. Cool. Thanks a lot, Felix. Here's a sneak peek of what's in store for the next Shopify Masters episode. For me, it was one of the most important investments we ever made because um, you live with your logo forever or variations of it. And if you get it right, it'll pay off. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.